your host, and tonight we're going to be covering uh, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we would like to introduce our co-host tonight, which is Ray Tull. Ray, are you there? Yes, I am, Linda. So, uh, Ray, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's kind of cool up here in corn and soybean country, uh, about 50 degrees. It's supposed to get down about uh, freezing tonight. But well, Joyce I wish that was true for us. Yeah, but Joyce is taking care of me here. She's got me a cup of hot chocolate sitting right here, so I, I can stay warm. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're happy to have you with us. Before we would begin, uh, next week is a very special week for uh, our entire network because our our owner-producer, Mark uh, David Smith, is going to be with us. So we're really excited about him being on with us. And we hope everybody will listen to our programs next week. Everybody has some special ones on and, and uh, just see where it leads us. We're going to try and cover uh, Yahweh and we're going to talk about um, his promises and his word. And uh, that's going to be kind of our theme through uh, what we're going to cover. So I uh, hope everybody's with us next week and, and uh, we have a real good turnout for it for uh, Mark. Uh, we don't get to have him on very often. So um, hopefully everybody can tune in. So let's go ahead and jump in here. And um, Ray, I, I, I left off last week talking about church format for services. Yes. And we want to talk tonight about, we're going to pick up on that because we didn't get to finish. We're going to get into the Protestant Reformation and we want to talk about um, how a lot of churches are set up with government from the top down, and if that is scriptural. And um, I came from a church where everything was ruled from the top. The ministers uh, made all decisions. The church members uh, just basically came, and that's basically how, how it worked. And I believe, uh, Ray, you had that same experience. Yes, I did, Linda. And so you can jump in here at any point and mention some of the experiences you had. It's not, um, it's not the way Yahweh planned for us to, to conduct services. We're going to start by talking about Acts 15 first. Um, and I, I just want to give you some background information on this. This was when they had a church council in Jerusalem. And it had, it was the situation where their salvation was necessary, well, no, that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And uh, we basically know that uh, through reading through what they had is they chose some men to go back to Antioch and to uh, teach the people that that salvation, it was that circumcision wasn't required for salvation. So it was uh, what it was basically explaining to you. That he's not saying that you do away with circumcision. That was not there. That was not what they were saying. They were just basically saying it was not required for salvation, and that's what was being taught to them uh, in the in some of the Gentile churches. So uh, pick up for me, if you don't mind, uh, 
Ray, on Acts 15, verse 22, and I want to just emphasize something that's written in there. Okay, it says, uh, Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole assembly to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judah, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. So now, if you listen to what he just read, that you should pick up on something immediately. Who was there making that decision? The apostles, the elders, with the whole church. The church was not left out of the decision making. And it never was. And, it, and, and as you go through, you'll see more and more examples of that. Let's start uh, looking at how it was originally set up in the Old Testament. Uh, let's read Numbers 8, 9, verses 9 and 10, if you don't mind reading that for me, Ray. Okay, Numbers 8 and verse 9. Uh, and thou shalt bring the Levites before the tabernacle of the congregation, and thou shalt gather the whole assembly of the children of Israel together. And thou shalt bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall put their hands upon the Levites. So now what they're explaining here is that they brought the Levites up, and we all know that the Levites were the, Levites were the priest in the Old Testament. They were like the teachers also. And who, Ray, um, actually ordained uh, the Levites here? And they shall bring the Levites before Yahweh, and the children of Israel shall put their hands upon the Levites. So well, the ordination was done, was done by, by the, the high, high by the uh, high priest and the people, right? No, it actually doesn't it, say the high priest. It just says the children of Israel children put of their Israel? hands on the Levites. And uh -huh. so basically, what he's what. Yahweh has always wanted is for his churches to be controlled by the people, that they make the decisions in the church, and they were the ones. I was shocked when I read that, too. It says, and they shall bring the Levites before Yahweh, and the children of Israel shall put their hands upon the Levites. Yeah, that's so very, the, very uh, interesting. That's very interesting because yeah. we don't come from that throughout history, the churches have been controlled by a few group uh, councils or by, um, you know, the leaders and elders at the top of the church, and we've always thought, well, that's the way it's always been. Well, yes, because that's the way man has always done it. But when you be, as we begin looking at these scriptures, you find out the decisions are being made by the whole church as in Acts 15.22. Now, what about choosing the deacons? Surely that's the job of the ministers, right, Ray? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's read Acts 6, starting in verse 2. And we're going to go down to verse 6, I think it is, right? We're going to go from 2 to 6. Okay. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of Elohim and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among the seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, 
but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they cho chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurius, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Perminus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Okay, so it's very interesting because they brought, so actually who chose these uh, deacons? It says, first of all, I'm going to just bring out some points here. In Acts 6, 2, it says the multitude of disciples. Disciples are just people that follow the Messiah. But then in verse 3, it says, therefore, brethren. Brethren means the people in the church. The people in the church were the ones that says, now go pick out seven honest men, seven men of honest report, and bring them to us. And so that's what in verse 6 they did. They brought, they picked out seven men, and they brought them to the apostles, and they, I'm assuming the apostles, laid hands on them. So it, here we go. Here's the, the deacons were chosen by the people in the church. Brethren means people in the church. It, it's, it, it wasn't, they weren't chose by the apostles. They were chose by the people in the church. And so these are the examples that are being set for you by the, the people in the New Testament, basically, and the Old Testament, showing you that um, the people that were chosen were, were chosen not by a council. In fact, uh, the Messiah had very little to say about councils that was good. And so we're going to, uh, if you wouldn't mind, it, it seems like every time uh, they talk about councils, that they, it's always in a negative light in the Bible. So I j let's just prove some of that point. Uh, Matthew 10, verse 17, can you read that for us? Yes, it says, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. Okay, and then, and then it also went on and it said the Pharisees, which were the church leaders, and the Sadducees, which were the people that led the, the temple, it says, I'm just going to read these, Matthew 16, 6, and, uh, and Yeshua said unto them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they understood, um, verse 12, they understood they that they how that he bade them beware of the leaven of bread, not beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they immediately understood that he was not talking about being aware of, of leavened bread. He was talking about their doctrines, that they had to be beware of the Pharisees. Now, we read the New Testament now, and we say, well, well that's no problem for us today because we don't have any Pharisees and we don't have any Sadducees and they're not around anymore but we know from past programs that I've done that Philo left and went to Alexander he was a man of means and money and he started an Alexander school which is where the 
Nicene Fathers came from. Now, the Anna-Nicene Fathers were the uh, founders of the Catholic Church. So what we're telling you is that the very early tenements of the Catholic Church were, um, it were set up by the Pharisees. So that's why the Messiah said, beware of this, because you, you need to be aware of the Pharisees and Sadducees because they're going to push false doctrines on you. And he wasn't just talking about the people at that time. He's talking about the people of our time also. So, uh, And then the other thing that I find that's interesting is Luke 12, verse 1. It says, In the meantime, when they were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon the other, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, the word hypocrisy is a very bad translation in this case because the word they're using there for hypocrisy means deception. So he says, because beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is deception. So the Pharisees were well established in the early church. And, and you will notice that in all the early churches, uh, they had a great influence, especially the Catholic Church. And many of the churches came out of the Catholic Church. We know that. Now, um, the, the example has been set for us, the way that services were conducted, is they read the books of the law. And then after they read the books of the law, they would have people speak. I mean, that, you can see that in verse, in Acts 13, 14, and 15, it says, 15 says, after the reading of the law and the prophets of the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of extortion for the people, say on. So they had people speak, and that they actually discussed scripture. So uh, Ray... Can you uh, give us some examples? Let's read Acts 17, verse 2, of how they discuss scriptures in church. Okay, Acts 17, 2. Let's see here. I'm getting there. Just a second. Okay, Acts 17.2 says, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Okay, so what is, what is he saying there, really? He's saying that he went in and he discussed it with them. It was not a situation like we have today where so one person gets up and speaks, and then he finishes, and then, they, and then there's no discussion about what he's just said. So he actually spoke and taught them, and then they had discussion about it. And that's the way services were held. Now, um, we're going to talk uh, on one, and mention one of the other things that, uh, that upset them, is that he would actually lay hands on people and heal them in the, in the synagogues on the Sabbath day. And that was not their custom. They, they probably basically may have asked people to pray for sick people, but they did not lay hands on them 
right there in the middle of services and uh and the people would may hope and so i think that was what really upset them more than anything that they they mentioned it was unlawful to heal on the sabbath day what they were really saying is why are you laying hands on him that's not our that's not our tradition we don't lay hands on him in the middle of church and this was this was brought out that that's one of the things that you do in services is that follow the example of the Messiah when somebody's sick, you lay hands on them right there if they're in, if if it's possible to do that and and say a prayer over them. And uh, let's go also to um, and just mention one other thing. Uh, can you go to Psalms one forty nine verse three? Okay. Okay, it says, let, let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with a timbrel and harp. Timbrelings, yeah, and harps. Which I think is really interesting because, you know, a lot of churches do not include dancing in their church, but it actually does say here that this is one of the ways that you praise him is through dancing and through chanting uh, songs and using instruments. So, and you, and this is also backed up in Second uh, Chronicles twenty nine verse twenty five, where they they also mention using instruments, string instruments, and um, and playing music. Now, we're going to do some discussion on First Corinthians fourteen, um, and and talk about what that chapter is is discussing. Most people think that that's about speaking an unknown tongues and and it has to do with speaking in a different language yes but the word that they're using there for tongue is not the word for language the tongue the word for tongue there which is strong's 1100 is glossa it probably has it just means tongue but it also can mean to speak it was their custom back in that time to for somebody to read scripture in Hebrew because remember they didn't have their own Bibles they didn't have any uh, because there was no printing press there was no way to to have your own Bible so those things had to be hand copied it took long lengths of time to do it because they had people writing them and checking them to make sure there's no errors so they would read out loud and then they would have somebody come back and interpret. And and when Paul wrote this years ago, he, he probably had no idea what was going to follow. Because this one teaching, if if it had been applied, would have saved many, many people's lives in the Dark Ages. Because what basically happened was that, you know, the the Philo who and his men that he trained went into the Catholic Church and influenced the Catholic Church and they read scripture in Latin and they continued to read scripture in Latin for for many many years and so what we have here is if they had just followed the basic principles in 1 Corinthians 14 they would have realized that that's no there was no point in doing that now 
we know that uh, Paul mentions a couple of things. Uh, can you read 1 Corinthians 14, verse 19 for me, uh, Ray? Okay, verse 19 says, But in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind to instruct others than 10,000 words in another language. So what he's trying to bring that point out, is that it's much better just to speak it in the people's language. But if, if not, go ahead and read it and make sure that there's an interpreter. Now, it also discusses another important point, and that is how we conduct discussions in uh, services. And we're going to drop down to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, and read verse 26 and 27. Would you mind reading that for me, please? Okay. Verse 26, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 says, uh, How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath, a, hath an interpretation? Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or by the most, by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. Okay, so what he's basically saying, if anyone speaks, now the word unknown has been added there. If you'll notice in your Bible, the word unknown is italicized, it was added. So it's, he's really saying, if any man he preach, preaches and gives a message, or if any man speaks in a different language, if he speaks in a different language, let somebody be there to interpret, to explain what's being read. Now, uh, he also goes on, it's, and, let's, and he mentions, and I'm going to read verse 30, if anyone be revealed to, if anything be revealed to another that sits by, let the first hold his peace. So the whole point is that, Everything that was done in services had order to it. And Paul was putting a, a few rules out here, just trying to, to some guidelines for the people. He said, if someone's speaking and something, the revelation comes to you, he said, wait and hold your peace and get, wait to your turn to talk. Now, then he says, for ye may all prophesy. Now, prophesy, the word prophesy there means speak with spiritual inspiration, one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. So what it's saying here is you take turns. It's not, what basically happens is most churches is that the council or the church leaders pick the deacons and they pick the leaders. And then basically that is the only services you have is conducted by the leaders. And no one else gets to really participate, but what what is being said here by Paul is that everybody should get a chance. Now, he's not talking about the women because, and you read down, on down in the in this particular chapter, and it says women were really not supposed to do the, the, the teaching in the church, They're not not in the not in the actual services. So he mentions that. And I just think it's very interesting that how he put order to it. But he wrote this chapter not uh, knowing what was going to happen 
and what was going to follow in the 12th and 13th century in England. So we're going to pick up on that story, and we're going to talk about what actually happened in the 3rd and 4th century. I need to take a little break here, um, and, and when we come back, we're going to start on the Protestant Reformation. Setting History Straight on Lamb Radio, which promotes the Messianic lifestyle, a lifestyle of hope. Join Dr. Scotty Thomas, Stephen Morgan, and Susan Hoogie of Messianic Morning Prayers each Tuesday and Thursday mornings at 7.30 a.m., on Messianic Lamb Radio, promoting a lifestyle with hope. Fight the flu with defense and build your immune system naturally. Defense is a blend of natural remedies including black cumin oil, rice bran, muscadine grapes, shiaga, and heart of garlic. Scientists indicate that black cumin essential oil has properties known to reduce allergies, stimulate bone marrow to produce immune cells, and help inhibit infection in cancer cells. The stabilized rice bran is a whole food and high concentrate extract providing essential fatty acids, trace minerals, amino acids, and phytonutrients that are lacking in our modern diet. These properties are known to be especially helpful when exposed to radiation. Muscadine grape is known to be high in antioxidants, which may help to restore immune function. Chiaga, which grows naturally on cone-bearing trees, helps to stimulate our T-cells and white blood cells for the body's immune system. Last but not least, the heart of garlic, with its allicin properties, provide a natural defense against bacteria, parasites, and fungal infections, and helps to remove heavy metals and other toxins. For more information and to save on our special of buy 10 and get 2 free, go to Med- MessianicLambRadio.com and click on Remit Remedy. Welcome back to Setting History Straight, live here on Lamb Radio, promoting a lifestyle of hope. Okay, we're back again, and we want to pick up on, uh, we were talking about 1 Corinthians 14, and if, if the people in the Dark Ages had had read that and followed those instructions, but they twisted the scripture and made it talk about tongues. And really it was about, you know, speak to people in their own language. And we know that around the 12th century is when in England and Scotland and in uh, Ireland that they stopped keeping the Saturday Sabbath. And they were doing, they were forced to stop. Well, the first circumstance was Margaret, um, the Queen of Scotland, married Malcolm the Great, and he was the King of Scotland. Uh, I think she married him about 1069 A.D., and she convinced the people, the Celtic leaders, that they should be keeping Sunday instead of the Sabbath. At that time, they were actually keeping both days, but Sunday they worked on. They would go to church on Sunday, but they went to church on Saturday, Saturday, and then Sunday they would go for early service, and then they'd come home and work. And that was that was how they did it. Did it? Why they 
went on Sunday is another whole story. But until the 12th century, Scotland was keeping the Saturday Sabbath, the 12th century, almost the 13th century. Then it's it stopped in Dublin uh, in 1172 when King Henry II come, came in with his army and took over the Church of, of Ireland and um, it, turned it over to the Catholic Church once he did that. So at that point, the, the uh, Sabbath keepers went underground and, and you know, they are very, they were in the background, they were not, uh, they were probably keeping the Sabbath on, without people having knowledge of it. Now, 150 years later, something very interesting happened, and that was uh, the Black Plague hit Europe. Now, the Black Plague had already started in the Byzantine Empire, and we talked about the Byzantine Empire quite a bit. Uh, it started in Sicily around the 4th century. And it was in uh, Justinian's reign that it at, that it actually hit. And if you go back and look at some of the stuff Justinian did, you'd understand why. And he, this was, it only the the plague only hit the Byzantine Empire. Didn't it never ventured ventured into um, into Europe, where the uh, Germanic tribes had came in from Scythia, remember, and settled in Western Europe. It did not venture in that area. It's, it was confined to the Byzantine Empire, which I think is interesting. But once the people stopped keeping uh, the laws, then, you know, this, this, what happens then is that God lifted his protection and between 1348 and 1352 in uh, Europe, 25 million people died of the plague. In five years, 25 million people died of the plague. And so the people really thought that they were living at the end time. They, 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 it caused an unbelievable stir among the people because they thought that they were living at the end time. Many of them put signs on their uh, buildings and their homes saying, uh, God, please have mercy on our family. They were truly beginning to repent. And it's interesting that, that the plague caused uh, them to repent. They even painted red crosses on their doors. Um, and it, they had come to a point of repentance. Now, at that point... Uh, God sent someone named John uh, Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe is hardly mentioned in history at all. And he was uh, a, the leader of a group called the Love Lords. And I have trouble uh, saying that. And they, we know, were Sabbath, Saturday Sabbath-keeping people. Now, I'm going to give you a reference here. I'm going to scroll down here and see if I can find. There's two references for that. One is Daniel Augberger. He wrote the Sabbath and the Lord's Day during the Middle Ages. And Sabbath in Scriptures and in History, written by Kenneth Strayed. Strayed. 
uh, and it's between on pages 190 through 214. They talk about John Wycliffe and how he was a Sabbath keeper. Now, he began to show the people that they needed to repent because they, from, from that point, they thought that they were living at the end time. And he was a huge thorn in the side of the Catholic Church because he was always pointing out the false teachings in the Catholic Church. Now, remember, the people didn't have a Bible, so they had to use... Uh, whatever they were taught, and they were being taught in the Catholic Church with the Latin Vulgate, and by that time, the Latin Vulgate, they had changed it so much it hardly looked like uh, the original scripture. And John Wycliffe had a group of friends. He actually worked at Oxford uh, University, and he had a group of friends that surrounded him that they studied together. And it's interesting because when things got tough, Ray, what happens? All his friends left him. So when when persecution came on, on Wycliffe, all the friends abandoned him. And after some of them had to be were put in prison and put in jail, and the, everyone uh, abandoned uh, him. So he was just left by himself. And he was the only one that was at that point that was teaching the people that they need to return back to Yahweh, they need to return back to his laws, because the other people had just left. They basically just left. Uh, Ray, do you was, have any comments? Was this, uh, uh, was this before the printing press? This was, yes, it was before the printing press. It sure was. Okay. Which he did handwrite the first English Bible. And he wrote it in 1830, no, 1380, sorry about that. Uh, he wrote it and he was, like I said, he was t terribly persecuted, but he got very sick and he died fairly quickly and just, just infuri infuriated the Pope. And the Pope actually dug his body up and ground up his bones and poured his bones in the river. And, you know, and crushed him. And it was just um, because he didn't get a chance to, <laughs> didn't get a chance to actually kill him before um, before he had, had died. And so it, it, it's kind of a sad story in a way because at the end of his life, all his friends had left him. But he never, he never left his faith, though. He stood strong and he wouldn't, uh, they offered him money to change his, uh, to, to stop teaching, they offered him, um, you know, uh, positions. He would he would take none of that because he was determined that he was going to teach the people. And so the people began to have their eyes open, and they began to see. Well, you know, churches is, is uh, has some has some errors, but they didn't know that because they didn't have their own Bible. They had no way to know that. Now the printing press. Uh, came about shortly after that time because this he died relatively around the end of the of the 13th century somewhere around 1390s I think is when he died. The printing press was was created um, in 1450, and it was a mad rush to get the first Bible 
uh, created and, and done. And of course, they did it in Latin. Um, and it didn't take long before they realized that they could start print, printing the Bible in other languages. Now, so, um, so the, uh, the printing press uh, was, was kind of instrumental in bringing about the, uh, the uh, Protestant Reformation then. In, in a way. Exactly what happened, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And what's the interesting thing about it was is that that was perfect timing because Yahweh was ready to teach the people because they had now, they were willing to listen because he had gotten their attention with the Black Plague. And so they were really, they were ready, they had, they were ready to listen at that point. Now, uh, about 40 years after the peak of the Black Plague, another man came on the scene. And these are people that you have never heard of because, you know, history just doesn't talk about them, but they had played such a major role in history. And this man in 1496, John Collette, his father was the mayor of London, and that's why he was able to do this. Uh, he went into, he was allowed to go into St. Paul's Cathedral, and he started reading the New Testament in English. And believe me, that caused a stir, because up until that point, for over, you know, from the 12th century on, up until this is now the 14th century, it's 200, almost 300 years, they have never heard English read. In, in their churches. But what did 1 Corinthians 14 say? Remember? Paul wrote it and he said it's much better to, to hear the, the scripture read in your own language. He, he, he was inspired by, by God to write that, but he didn't understand what he was writing. I mean, he didn't, he didn't understand the significance of how it would affect the future. And of course... Those scriptures were ignored and twisted by, by the people who had, who had written the Latin Vulgate. So what was going on is they were reading the scripture in Latin. People didn't understand it. And so when John Colette started reading scripture uh, at St. Paul's Cathedral, he not only filled up the church, but every week he would have... 20,000 people standing outside the church trying to listen. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that today that, that you know, we're so used to having Bibles that are written in our language, but these people had never heard the Bible spoken in their language. What a moving thing that must have been to God to look down and see people 20,000 people standing outside the church. And they did this. They did this for six months. There was no seats, so they all stood outside the church to listen because they had never heard the Bible read in their language. And how moving that must have been for, for God to look down and see that, to see that these people were coming to a what? They were coming to a revelation, and they were coming to a spiritual revival. England was waking up, and they were beginning to realize that there was something wrong with the way they had been worshiping.
Now, Ray, if, if you go through history over and over and over again, the Israelites would do what? They would, they would repent, then they would slack off. And they would repent, and they would slack off. And so this has been the this has been the thing that they've done throughout history, and there has been several, many uh, revivals of of our people. There's been many revivals, but we just are not aware of them. And here's this man nobody knows about. He's not mentioned in history. He was the one that brought it all to a head. Because once the people heard the Bible written in their language, they no longer wanted to go back to the Latin uh, Vulgate. The, then now you have a problem in the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church was infurious. They did not want these Bibles, and they did not want them written in English, and they only wanted Bibles out there written in Latin, and they did not want their services done in English. Well, there was no turning back. There was no turning back at this point. The people were, were absolutely not going to uh, make any changes and turn back at this point. They were going to stick to keeping, keeping their, uh, their English translations. Well, it didn't take long to when Tyndale wrote, he wrote the first Bible in English in 1526. Now we also know that Martin Luther was was causing a, revo uh, a, a revolution of his own in Europe, in Germany actually. But uh, Wycliffe had already stirred the pot 200 years almost before, before um, well at least 150 years before um, Martin Luther ever came on the scene, so he was really the person who started the, the what we consider the uh, the Protestant Reformation. But why do you think he's not mentioned? He's a Sabbath keeper. You see, so that this is one of the reasons. Well, Henry VIII and every um, all the uh, Catholic Church, they were taking the English Bibles that were being made and burning them as fast as they could burn them. And under Henry VIII, if you were caught with a with an English Bible, you, you would be burned at the stake. So people had them. If they had them, they were hiding them. But they were determined to have them. And so you did have many people that got burned at the stake. Now, Tyndale wrote the first English Bible, and he was caught, he was, the, he was betrayed by one of his dear friends and put in prison, and Henry VIII finally had him uh, burned at the stake, and as he was, <coughs> excuse me a second, as he was uh, being, um, you know, killed, he out loud, he made a prayer, and he said, uh, Heavenly Father, please open the eyes of the king. And within three years to that, from those words, Henry VIII went in and put a English Bible in every church in England. It was called the Great Book. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that, but Yahweh honored the prayer of Tyndale, his last prayer. And he opened the eyes of Henry VIII 
And Henry VIII went in and took and put the Bibles, the English Bibles, in the churches in England. What an unbelievable thing to have happen because the people were determined at that point and they were willing to die to keep their English Bibles. And I, I just think it's the most fascinating story. Uh, and, and when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 14, he had no idea what would transpire from that point on. Uh, Ray, would you like to say something? Uh, well, uh, you know, Martin Luther, uh, he, uh, he nailed, uh, you know, 95 theses on the Wittenberg church, uh, door, you know, in 1517, I think it was. And uh, there's a controversy about the date. Uh, some, some believe it was on October the 31st, which is all Hallows Eve, which is, which is Halloween. But, uh, uh, Anyway, that uh, one one of the one of the big things about the about that was that they that they were complaining about the the Catholic Church doctrine was uh, the indulgences right, of, right. of the Catholic Church where they were uh, where you had to pay the priest for forgiveness of sin. Right, exactly, and uh, this this was uh, this was done. Uh, with the intention of, um, you know, of keeping, you know, just a way of earning money from for the church. I mean, they were all about money. It, it's it's unbelievable. We don't think in those terms, but I I think what I've explained to people tonight is a, a real important point. Is that even though the people were staunchly in their uh, promised within their Catholic Church or their Universal Church, you know they repented, and and many of them, and that's how some of their churches came out of there. You, not all of the churches didn't mean that they all followed uh, God's laws. They didn't, but they did see that they had to change, and so there was this huge huge spiritual revival in England. It, when you stop and think, can you picture today a, a church, a major church like, say, in New Orleans? And you, can you just imagine every seat full and 20,000 people standing outside? It just it boggles our mind, but, but that's what was going on. There was a huge religious uh, revival going on in England, and my question is, is it possible for for another revival to take place in this country? Because we had one under George Whitfield, if you remember, about five years before um, before the American Revolution, there was a huge revival in this country, and that revival, uh, the, that particular revival, brought everybody to their knees. George Whitfield was another person who was an he kept, I'm, and when I eventually get to teach you about George Whitfield, I'll give you the quotes. But he kept Passover. He kept uh, Pentecost. It does, it's not mentioned that he keep, kept Sukkah, but he probably kept that too. Um, he was a Saturday Sabbath keeper. He was a member of what they call the Holy Club. And all of the people in the Holy Club were Saturday Sabbath keepers. He came out of Oxford University. 
and they had a little club they called the Holy Club, and guess who was in it? Charles Wesley, John Wesley, um, many of the early starters of some of the early churches in America. And so it, my question for people, is it possible for there to be another revival? And, you know, I go to many churches and 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 they always pray for peace in Jerusalem. Why not why not pray for the for this country and pe- the people in this country? Pray that there's a revival in this nation. And, and you know, um, I often think about the story of Abraham and how when when God came to Abraham and said, you know, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, how Abraham stood in the gap for those people and how he said. You know, if there's 50, what about 45? What about 40? What about 30? Then he got all the way down, and and finally I think it got to 10, if I'm not mistaken. And there wasn't 10 righteous people in all of all of the, that entire area. Well, you know, it's time in our country. A lot of people are, you know, don't think they need to discuss prophecy because, you know, it, it causes fear in the churches. Well, you know, um, that's, you know, doesn't uh, God say when you see all these things happening that you're to lift your head up, that you're supposed to be happy and lift your head up because our salvation draws near. And I think that's in the book of Luke uh, chapter 21. So it's it's not something to fear. It, you know, the things that are coming on this country is not something to fear. It's a time now for us to pray for a revival in this nation and that we pray that our children are called. Now, you know, if you have a chance, um, you know, all of you need to read Acts 2, verse 17, and I'm just going to read it to you, and it says, It came to pass in the last days, said Yahweh, I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. And... Our sons and our daughters shall prophesy, and our young men shall see visions, and the old men shall dream dreams. We're coming to a time soon that our children need to be called. We need to be praying that our children are called. We need to also be understand that there's going to be a huge uh, pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon our on part of the people who are the people with the book, the people that are keeping God's laws. Now, Ray, I know you'd like to make some comments. Um, No, I don't think so right now. Yeah, you know, I just think it's really important that people uh, understand that, you know, we've come to this time that it could, we could have another revival in this country and not have to go through the punishment. If you remember, if you read Ezekiel 5, chapter 5 and chapter 6, it says that he took and and one-third of the people were punished by famine and pestilence. One-third were punished by war, and a third were blown to the wind. Well, that's never happened, but it began happening in England. But the people repented, you see, so the, the plague stopped. And, it, and you get to Ezekiel uh, 6 and you read verse 9 and it says, And they that 
that escaped of you shall remember me among the nations where they shall be carried captives because I am broken with with their whorish heart which has departed from me and with their eyes which go whoring after other idols. They shall allot themselves for, for the evil which they have committed in, uh, and in all their abominations. So that last third of the people will repent. So I think we're pretty close to the end of our program now, and, and I would encourage all of you at this time to, uh, to pray for this country and pr pray for a revival. If you see uh, a speaker come to the, to the forefront that's telling people to keep uh, the laws and keep the Sabbath day and keep, um, you know, and to uh, that we are the Israelites, then take hold because that man has been sent by God. So we, w we want to uh, close now, and I'm going to say, Ray, would you like have any final comments? Uh, well, uh, I, I don't know about a, a great revival in this country. I don't, I don't see it happening, but I, I do see a revival after, in the tribulation, those uh, that it shows in the book of Revelation that washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb uh, and, and uh, stand, stand before the throne. But uh, other, than, other than that, I don't see it happening until we get to that point. Right, and what I'm saying is that, you know, in, in, since our country, since our people have gone through many revivals, that if we continue to pray, maybe that would be something that Yahweh would bring a revival in this nation, and that more people would be saved, because we don't really have to go through the end time if we repent, and he says that. So we need to be cognizant of that. We also need to be cognizant that, uh, we pray for our children and uh, our our family members. Yes. So with all that, we're going to go ahead and close tonight and say blessings to all, and to, uh, and and we'll see you next week, and and we'll have Mark on next week. So hopefully everybody tunes in to hear Mark. Okay. So thanks very much, and we're going to close now.